This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. And welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Clara Cook. Hi Clara, how are you? Hi Duncan, I am nice and healthy and still here. (laughs) Safe, cocooned, locked down, down. sheltered at home. Is that what they call it in America? Sheltered in place. Sheltered, is that that what they say? Every country seems to have a different terminology for what we're doing. Yeah. Um, Actually, I don't even know what ours is, to be honest, because we're not technically under lockdown well maybe you're under lockdown i'm under social distancing uh and kind of um i think they've sort of avoided even providing an exact word for it but pretty but broadly speaking we're under lockdown yeah yeah it's not quarantine is it really but it's kind of feels like it <laughs> it certainly does and i think you've been observing these rules slightly longer as well haven't you is that right then you were doing it already before the whole country got kind of put on this new regime yeah so it's day 38 for me so i have been out of the house briefly for short walks uh socially distance walks i've been to the supermarket twice with gloves and a mask but i don't really go to the supermarket at all i have either food deliveries or my husband uh goes grocery shopping with gloves and a mask and um yeah so it's day 38 so i i I started uh socially isolating i worked from home on the 13th of march friday the 13th that fateful day Uh, and and it was part of a trial at work to see if we could work from home in the event that the university was going to close and then over the course of that weekend the news and also the my concern and what the government was doing and what was going on. And also having consulted my own doctor, uh, I decided that I wasn't going to go back to work. And then about a week and a half, well, about, yeah, about a week later, they closed the university. So all my work colleagues continued to go to work for a week. Uh, and I felt quite tortured about that. I have to say working from home, I felt like I was maybe like, I don't know, being a bit chicken, being a bit cowardly. And looking back on it now, I'm like, what was I thinking? This is totally okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's been a long time. It feels oddly like it's gone very fast and oddly like it's very, very slow as well. Mm. You see, I'm kind of used to the idea of working from home. It's the not being able to go out other than that, you know, one exercise session a day or whatever, you know, walk the dogs or whatever it is that uh, feels slightly alien to me. I I miss my going swimming and kind of um, 
the freedom really more than anything work the actual working from home if i can get any work done because we've got a four-year-old in my house which means we're notionally homeschooling uh which i think is a bit of a misnomer in our case so we're basically uh trying to keep a small person uh trying to keep a small person entertained and happy uh and throwing in the odd bit of sort of educational activity but um that seems to take up quite a lot of the physical and psychic space i think so actually you know someone described it, i think they said rather than calling it working from home they should call it being at home and trying to get some work done which i think <laughs> is more accurate really you know um have you been out of your house uh, on thursday nights to applaud the nhs workers or have you been applauding from your window or have you been listening to i imagine because you're in london the noise is probably more cacophonous there than it is uh in my slightly sleepy town but even here there's there's if you're not um, primed for it, you know, if you've, you've forgotten that it's happening, you'll be kind of jolted into it by someone <laughs> banging a dustbin lid, you, you know, several doors down and kind of getting the whole town going. Yeah, I mean, I can go out into the garden, but really what I normally do is lean out our windows to the sort of front of the house um, and to the street. And so I can see everyone else leaning out of their windows and everybody's come out into the street. And it's very loud here. It's, uh, yeah, it's a really joyous thing. I think in London, or maybe uh, it depends obviously where you live, but on our street, uh, a lot of people are also whooping. There's a lot of cheering and whooping right. as well as clapping. And I think a lot of it is actually cathartic for people to just have a scream out their window um, because yeah. they've been locked in for so long. But yeah, <laughs> it, it does feel really good. And the other day, the bus driver went by and he sort of stopped his bus at the bus stop and people applauded him specifically. And he's not he's not an NHS worker, but he's an essential, you know, um, I mean, other bus drivers on this route that we have here are essential workers, you know, they're frontline workers. So, And a lot of them have died. Yeah, a lot of them I mean, have died, yeah. You, you know, as well as all the doctors and nurses who've died, there have been quite a large number of transport workers who've died that we've heard about. So they're absolutely, you know, on the front lines in a sense in those jobs. Yeah, so it's kind of nice to be able to actually applaud somebody who's there right in front of you and they can actually see the applause and that was really lovely. And all, all around here there's signs in everyone's windows uh, sort of thanking the NHS, you know, really encouraging signs of rainbows, a lot of them drawn by kids, which is really cute. Uh, sort of kind of saying to people, like, keep your head up, you know, um, this will end, you know. So I think the mood here is, like, really encouraging. There's a lot of community groups online that are helping out their neighbours um, and people are within social distancing rules, you know, people are, like, going shopping for people who are really elderly um, or who are living in households where everybody's sick. So there's some really positive things to come out of this, um, as well as all the really depressing things that we see on the news as well. So I think it is interesting. It's something that has certainly focused attention on our health service in a way that um, maybe we've never seen to quite that extent before. I mean, the health service gets kind of bandied around. I and mean, we've had a lot of election campaigns recently where there have been threats to the health service. There's been this kind of, you know, this idea. And I mean, it may be this coronavirus may be in some ways the thing that saves the NHS because it has kind of absolutely brought public attention onto it in a very positive way. You know, people are coming out in the streets, they are celebrating, they're raising that um, 99-year-old man who's raised £20 million. I mean, whatever you think about the kind of ethics of the NHS being treated as a charity when arguably it should be, you know, government funded as it's supposed to be a part of the kind of national infrastructure, um, it does show how much people are 
how much people believe in it. And I think, you know, not that long ago, the last election campaign, we were having all this stuff about, you know, is Trump trying to buy the NHS? Are we privatised? And we've already privatised certain aspects of the NHS. You know, is the NHS in danger of being lost, basically? Um, now it sort of feels like that would be very difficult in some ways. But it kind of also, it's interesting to think about it in a sort of global context, because obviously, you know, we have our own sort of history about our health system and our own ideas about our health system. I know a lot of other countries, you know, they have similar um, things. I mean, I heard an interview with someone who was in Canada talking about the, and I can't think of his name, but I'm sure our Canadian listeners will know who I'm talking about, the guy who basically set up the, the National Health Service in Canada, uh, who is a revered you know, figure there. Um, the, the reason all this is relevant, the reason we're we're waffling at such great length about what's going on kind of at the present moment, and I should say, I mean, we don't normally talk about the kind of uh, exact period that we're recording in because there's often a bit of delay while we get these things edited and so on. But we're recording on the 20th of April for what it's worth. So if anything we say today turns out to be wildly out of date or it seems inappropriate, that's why. That's, that's when this... Uh, discussion is coming from, um, is we're going to be looking today at the uh, Voyager episode, Critical Care, which is a late uh, Voyager episode. And it's quite an interesting one because it's one that very much is um, considering the kind of issues around healthcare, around some of the problems potentially with healthcare systems. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think. I always viewed this episode as very explicitly a critique on the American healthcare system, the kind of privatised model, um, which is very different to socialised medicine, as they call it in America. I, I was rather shocked when I first heard that term, but, you know, with huge scare quotes around it. But, uh, you know, to us and to most <laughs> Europeans, this seems completely normal. Um but I know that some people viewed that episode the opposite way, because I've had conversations with Americans who said that they thought it was a criticism of European, you know, of socialised uh, healthcare, basically, of, of a kind of a different model. So it's interesting that it can be interpreted in different ways. But however you look at it, that episode is very much trying to say something or at least trying to raise certain questions around the ethics of healthcare and the ethics of a healthcare system and how it treats the patients who rely on it. Yeah, so I understand what you're saying. I, I think the episode is viewed differently by different um, cultures, specifically, I would say, American versus British viewpoints or American versus European viewpoints. I think that the issue that I have with seeing it as a criticism of socialised medicine or a national healthcare system, which is free at the point of entry, um, like the NHS, is that the episode is... In this episode, in Critical Care, the healthcare system is very much centered on people being given a qualifying number. And that number is devised by a formula which considers lots of different things, but primarily their usefulness to the society that they live in. Um, in a sense, a meritocracy. But the issue with this is that that isn't what socialized medicine is. I mean, I don't get healthcare because I am useful to British society. Um, or I'm not useful to British society, um, I get healthcare according to my need, as each according to their needs. And that's more socialised medicine, each according to their own needs. If I need, God forbid, to be put on a ventilator, then the NHS will do their very best to put me on a ventilator. If I need an x-ray because I broke a bone in my foot, the NHS will give me an x-ray. If I don't need one, then they probably won't. Uh, whereas a few times I've been in the American healthcare system... 
uh, not many times, but a few times I have, I've actually been given tests I don't need because my father had such great medical insurance through his job uh, when we were there. And, they, you know, I mean, I remember once being in the emergency room in the US um, when I was a little girl and I had a terrible, terrible case of tonsillitis and a very, very high fever. And they examined me for all of this and did all these tests. And then I mentioned to the doctors, I said, I have a tummy ache. And my mom said she almost gagged me because she said, don't because then they were like well maybe we should x-ray her stomach and my mom was like no don't do that like there's nothing wrong she's got she's like you know i was like a nine-year-old or something she's like got a stomach ache um so that's i think that's one of the major differences there is a system here and i myself have also been a victim of it in the uk specifically with some life-changing medical treatment i don't know if i should say on the podcast i'm not ashamed of it but i myself and my husband are infertile and we have tried multiple times to have children through ivf um, and it's been quite a frustrating experience because we only qualified for one cycle of ivf um, on the NHS because of our postcode. And the postcode lottery is basically, depending which borough you live in, different types of healthcare are portioned to you. Nothing like, well, hopefully nothing life-threatening or life-saving. Like, I think if I was actually dying, they're not going to send send out or not send out an ambulance to me depending on where I live. But for something like IVF, I... Only I lived in a, 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 a borough in South London at the time and I qualified for it and I only got one cycle and one cycle isn't really enough when it comes to IVF. Anyone who's been through it knows you need to have at least three cycles for any sort of kind of success. Um, and so the second cycle we had to pay for privately. In the US, they would say, oh, well, that's being determined for you by the government. It should be your right to have three. But the idea that every a meritocracy only works if everyone's born on a level playing field. And what's shown in this episode is that even when this young man, what's his name? I can't remember his name. The, the, the young guy who wants to be a doctor, basically. The young guy who wants to be a doctor, yeah. Doing, yeah. And he's shown having talent, but even though he's shown having talent, he is kind of determined to go work in a refinery. Mm. He's just not of high status enough to even be able to train as a doctor. So not only is he not of like high status enough to be able to get medical care, life-saving medical care, but he's also not high status enough to be able to lift himself to a higher status. So that's the essential problem with giving people healthcare in a, merit a meritocracy um, or based on merit. Um, and so this is why, this is a long explanation, but this is why I do not think this episode is about socialized healthcare systems i think it is about a healthcare system it's about inequality i actually think it's a critique on the american healthcare system absolutely and as i say that's I, I mean i completely agree with you and maybe i would because you know we're coming at it from pretty much the same perspective and i, and I didn't think i wouldn't necessarily assume that all americans uh, agree with those who think that it is a critique of kind of european um you know socialized or nationalized healthcare models i think many of them see it as 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 we do as a critique of the american system it is true it's confusing because they take out the the money element because it's not really the inequality is not based on money it's based on this this quotient which is to do with perceived value to society and so on i think that does kind of skew things slightly but to me the the key takeaway really from this episode certainly if you look at it from the doctor's perspective the doctor's kind of being you know i was going to say beamed in he's not literally being he's, he's kidnapped and brought into this situation and activated in this hospital and what he can't get his head around is the fact that people are being treated unequally within the same hospital uh, and that he 
his approach is, as you say, you know, treat people according to their need. He sees someone who's dying, he rushes over and tries to help them. That's his Hippocratic oath, as far as he's concerned. Whereas he's being told by the kind of institution there, oh, no, you're needed on level blue. Level blue is where your dad's health insurance would no doubt have sent you. You know, you're needed in the kind of what, what looks I mean, level blue looks like a private hospital here. And I know a bit about this because my mum has, again, uh, I don't know if it was through her, but anyway, for whatever reason, she has private health insurance and she did have to have several operations. And the hospitals that she would have these operations in uh, were very different to any hospital that I've ever been to, if you know what I mean, on my own behalf. I mean, not to say that the NHS is kind of run into the ground or whatever, but it is, you know, I think it does an amazing job with the resources they have, but it is underfunded. They are always struggling to kind of keep things going um you you know some nhs hospitals are more kind of shiny and modern looking than others but it, it often there is a sense of you know people doing really good important uh, high quality work but with limited resources limited kind of um not the most salubrious environment necessarily or whatever whereas this kind of hospital that my mum was having her operations in was like a hotel you know it was all very beautiful pristine kind of relaxing calm hardly anyone there uh do you know what i mean totally different um experience really and that's what you get obviously if you can afford and choose to to pay for it but but it certainly feels like in the voyager episode that's kind of what we're seeing in that hospital is the people you know the the people who are considered valuable and they are the people who do the jobs that in a capitalist society and in our reality are the well-paid jobs and therefore you know they are the ones who probably could afford the, the the better treatment or whatever are being treated very differently from those lower down and even to the extent of um you know this idea of the, some of them that the very drug that the people on the bottom level need to survive is being given as a kind of preventative measure to those on the higher levels to kind of uh ward off you, you know almost as like a sort of supplement or something they don't they don't essentially need it it's, it's not um a matter of life and death that they need it but it's being kind of siphoned off to them because it's uh sort of vaguely beneficial to them and therefore the others are not getting it so to me absolutely it's it's the inequality that is the key um element of this system and that is absolutely i suppose what from an outsider maybe the american system looks like that particularly at the bottom you have people who are really uh struggling to get treatment i mean my aunt lived in america for her most of her career basically um and she towards the end of her professional career got quite sick and she almost died because she didn't she didn't have health insurance or whatever she she left her job or whatever by this point and um you know i think was financially not in a particularly good situation she didn't have any health insurance she got sick and she was sort of mulling over you know do i call how how sick am i do i call the ambulance or not you know what am i going to do and in the end i think her neighbor or someone called an ambulance for her basically because they were so worried about her and they said to her you know you would have died if you'd left this any longer but she was waiting because she was uh she was going to be eligible I don't know what age it is that you you get whatever kind of um, Medicare, right? Exactly. She was she was thinking I'll, I'll wait until I can do that. And in fact, they were saying, look, you know, if you'd waited, you wouldn't have made it to that age. You'd have been dead by then. But she was then stuck with this enormous bill. And um, well, I don't know if I should even be saying this. I don't, but basically, she had to come home again because she couldn't she couldn't pay the bill in the states, and so she left mm. the country. Uh, and as I understand, it can't get back there. And I mean, you know, whatever you know. People might have different opinions about the rights and wrongs of all of that. But certainly it gave me an insight into this idea that, you know, the people who cannot afford the treatment that they need to save their lives, that is a terrible situation to be in. I mean, the NHS, 
you're right, there are definitely aspects of it that are less than satisfactory. The postcode lottery thing would be one of them. Certain kinds of care in particular, I mean, there are often quite long waiting lists for operations. Um, something like mental health, again, wildly uh, variable what kind of help you get depending on where in the country you live, partly just because of the number of people accessing these things. So they can have a kind of national system where they have sort of um, a scheme that is supposed to be followed at local level. But in some places you might, you know, if you say you need to see a counsellor or whatever, in some places you might see one within a few weeks. In other places, you'll be waiting nine months before anyone speaks to you, which, you know, if you're going through a mental health crisis is not necessarily, it's not necessarily something you can wait for. So certainly there are elements where the NHS doesn't really um, work as well as it should do. Uh, but there is a basic principle, you know, if, if you break your leg, if you get run over in the street, if you have a heart attack and you get rushed into a hospital, whoever you are, you're going to get the same treatment. If they can save your life, they will do. And you're not going to be, uh, you know, in financial peril as a result of that treatment. Yeah. And I think we have to remember that the NHS is not like a siloed institution that isn't affected by everything else as well. So sometimes some of these problems that happen with our healthcare system, which is what I would assume one of the things that would have led to the healthcare system in the episode critical care is they the allocator not the allocator but the the head administrator who is working with the allocator who's obviously the computer that's allocating resources uh sort of explains that one of the reasons why they've got this system is because they didn't have enough resources as to go around and one of the reasons why the nhs like you know what the why the postcode lottery exists is because they don't have enough money to pay for everyone to have three cycles of nhs um uh, uh, ivf on the nhs and there is uh, there are uh, you know resources issues and one of the reasons why there are resources issues is because they're short staffed and they're short staffed because it's hard for key workers to get housing you know i mean a nurse uh, at the top of her field makes you know a salary a fairly okay salary but it's not really enough sal- enough money to be able to necessarily afford to buy a house or do you, know, do you know what I mean it's not it's not they're not wealthy the nurses and doctors aren't wealthy um and um housing in the UK is in certain places very expensive I remember talking ages ago to a person who I met at dinner party who was a nurse she was a um a nurse in an intensive care ward actually and I've been thinking about her um fairly amount fairly a lot actually nowadays because I uh, because of the um pandemic i assume my, she's still working in the nhs and she was living and working in oxford and she was describing about how the housing in oxford was so expensive that she was really struggling to to find a place to live but they need nurses in oxford to work in the hospital so so but if, if a nurse can't afford to live in oxford she might choose to go somewhere or he, he or she might choose to go somewhere else and then you have a lack of nurses in the nhs so what i'm saying is that the nhs mm-hmm. itself the resources of the nhs itself are affected by everything else in our, in our in our society as well they're affected by housing it's affected by you know the amount of money that um we have available to pay for medication um you know, the amount of money that we have available in, in, in our society to pay for medical equipment, um, that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of people, when they see the NHS, especially from outside the UK, they think, oh, well, it's, you know, um, your deci- the decision of whether or not you get the treatment is made by a bunch of doctors that you never meet or, you know, you go into hospital and you don't get the treatment that um, that's top notch and top quality. But I guess what 
you're doing in the UK is you're sacrificing a certain element of personal choice so that everybody gets healthcare. And that's the intrinsic difference. I think it's do, do you want to choose your doctor? Do you want to choose exactly the level and the type of healthcare you get? Um, and then not everyone to have healthcare, or do you want to sacrifice some of your personal choice in this way so that everyone can get healthcare? Like I can choose which GP surgery, general practitioner for the people who don't know where GP is, I can choose which doctor surgery I register with, but I can't necessarily choose mm. the exact doctor I go see at that GP surgery. But that's okay because I know that everyone who's in this area who can register with a GP will have access to free healthcare there. Um, Whereas I assume like what happens in the US when I talk to my aunt who's based in the US, she's like, do you have a family doctor mm. that you have gone out and found and you chose your family doctor? And I'm like, well, I didn't choose my family doctor. No. Um, but that's okay because everybody in my area gets a doctor. So um, free of charge. And I mean, I pay for prescriptions, but some people who are, don't, are not at a certain income level as me don't pay for their prescriptions. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with me paying like eight pounds or nine pounds. And I'm okay with the person who comes in the line in the pharmacy after me, who's like a little elderly old person or someone on a low income, not paying. And I know that my money has gone to pay for them. Um, but it's kind of the idea is it's about sacrificing some of your, yourself, your wealth, your personal choice, your freedom, so that everybody can have that freedom, if that makes sense. And I think that's kind of a fundamental difference um, from what the American healthcare system is, which is that I don't want to sacrifice my personal choice. I don't want to sacrifice my personal freedom so that everybody can have the same as me. But that's a really kind of goes against what this episode is saying, you know, like it, it kind of goes against the whole idea of Star Trek on a starship. Everybody has to kind of work together um, and although there's individualistic expression, you know, Neelix is very different than Janeway, shall we say. There's a hierarchical structure, but like they do have to make personal sacrifices in order for the whole of the ship to operate, if that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly if you're, you know, everyone on a Federation starship is going to get the same medical treatment, uh, you know, not only throughout the kind of command hierarchy and so on. Although it's an interesting question. I don't know whether, because there is that episode of Voyager, isn't there, where the doctor cho has to choose between two patients, which one does he save? And he has this kind of effectively a mental breakdown over the fact that he chose one over the other uh, because there was no medical basis for making that decision. Because you do have this kind of uh, system of triage which has come into the news recently here because, uh, and almost in a sort of battlefield context, because I mean, you get triage when you go into a hospital. This is one reason why most people's experience of the health service in Britain, or certainly for me, you know, growing up in London and for you too, I imagine, when you go to casualty, uh, when you go to the emergency room, basically because you've, you know, broken your leg or cut yourself or done something or whatever, um, you will be triaged. That's the first thing that will happen is a nurse will see you and you will get kind of prioritised according to how urgent it is. And basically, you know, if you're having a heart attack or something, obviously you'll go straight and you'll see a doctor straight away. If you're in a situation where you're not imminently in danger, you will probably end up sitting there for three, four hours, potentially. You, you know, you might be there a long time. Um, one thing I noticed since having a child, actually, is if you... 
if it's a child, even if it's one of those quite minor things, they suddenly get seen much more quickly, which I think is interesting. So there are, even within that kind of equal system, there are elements where they're, they're making decisions partly about the danger to the patient, but they're also, they are, I suppose, prioritising certain groups of people. But, you know, I would say arguably with good reason um, in those situations, an adult can probably cope with sitting there and dealing with a bit of pain for a few hours in order to be seen but you know a three-year-old can't really manage that and you know but also like I have a friend who's a pediatric nurse and she says quite she says fairly often that like children like because they have such fast metabolisms they can decline very quickly and something that is relatively minor can become quite serious quite quickly like for instance children's um the temperatures can rise very fast and fall very fast a lot quicker um than an adult could so it could be that they see a child and they're seeing the potential for further danger there may be a medical basis for that anyway well anyway i was just gonna say it's interesting because at the moment there've been talk about um you know, if we do end up in this crisis where there aren't enough ventilators for the number of people going into the hospitals, and, you know, we've seen here they've been building these massive hospitals just as they did in, in China. The Funnily enough, the, the NEC in Birmingham, where we've been going for the Star Trek conventions for the last few years, is now a hospital. It's one of these Nightingale hospitals. Um, that You know, huge preparation underway to deal with the the potentially vast number of people that are going to need to be treated but uh, ultimately there is the danger that there isn't enough treatment for the number of people coming in and then there are questions about who do you treat and in Italy I know they passed a law quite controversially saying and I don't know what the kind of um, repercussions of this have have been but obviously they're, they're kind of ahead of us on all this but there was this whole discussion about the fact they passed a law basically saying anyone over 70 was not going to get a ventilator if they're was a shortage essentially so there is a kind of form of triage there um of prioritizing some people over others and i know in care homes here there's been discussion about um trying to persuade residents and their families to sort of decline almost decline treatment if it gets to that situation and prioritize younger people over older people and so on so there is all of there are all those kind of questions about triage but ultimately um i'd say with a system like we have although you you might find elements of unequal treatment according to various factors that the goal is to save as many lives as possible and in that sense everyone is all in it together do you know what i mean there, there might be specific reasons why one person gets seen before another but the but they're not based on that person's ability to pay or that person's sort of social value or any of these kinds of things. they're based i suppose on medical criteria really which is very different from what we see in the Star Trek episode where the drugs that could be used to save a life on one level are almost being thrown away on a different level um, on people who don't really need them. Yeah, and I think one of the major issues in the medical system in critical care is that, like the doctor says this as well, it's not just where you allocate the resources, it's that almost they're like knowingly allowing people to die because mm. some of these people are uneducated, you know, they don't have a high enough like rating um, because they aren't um, skilled enough or they're not doing the right kind of job. And and the guy actually says, whatever his name is, I can't remember his name, the administrator, Administrator Chelik, you know, okay, can I just stop this for a second and say um, that I'm an administrator. So every time an <laughs> evil administrator comes on television or actually mm-hmm. Star Trek is kind of full of evil administrators, actually, I feel a little pang in my heart. I think, oh, not all administrators are bad. Sometimes you need administrators. Anyway, um, so 
yeah, Administrator Chalik actually says, you know, these people are a drain on resources, you know, and you're thinking, well, what resources? The resources that you're actually like allocating to people who don't even need them yet. You know, you're, you're giving people this drug that may prolong their life some way, but you know, there's nothing wrong with them. They don't need this drug yet. Um, and you're choosing to give it to them and not to somebody who needs it to save their lives. So it's, it's more than just like prioritizing people. It's actually knowingly not giving people medical care because you deem them not to be worthy enough for the resource in the first place. Um, and in a way that is, I would say, kind of doing harm. And surely the doctors, like, a doctor's mission is to do no harm. I mean, that's yeah. the Hippocratic Oath, right? Is to treat people and try and make them better, but to not knowingly do any harm. Um, and so you have to question whether or not the doctor working in the blue sector is actually abiding by the Hippocratic Oath. I guess the Hippocratic Oath doesn't apply across the entire galaxy, but it definitely applies to to the doctor and the Voyager. And he, that's why he's so horrified. So this leads to the question, which I came up in my mind like during the episode is in a society with limited resources, you know, they implied that this, this, this planet was dying before these administrators came along and the allocator was installed, you know, and now this society is now flourishing because they, they aren't drained of resources. Uh, do we really want to live in a society where some people have to die so other people can thrive? Do we really want to live in a world like that? Well, I think absolutely one of the things that's most shocking for the doctor in that episode is this idea of patients being denied treatments that they need that could save their lives. Um, you know, to the extent that ultimately that young guy who you mentioned who wants, you know, has dreams of his own to become a doctor himself and so on, uh, is not given the treatment that will save his life and dies as a result. Um, as it turns out, because the doctor has kind of exceeded his quota of, of medicine, basically. Uh, but, but ultimately, these people are making decisions to withhold treatment. And that absolutely, for me, is the thing that made it feel uh, very much like a critique of the American system. I don't know if you've seen the Michael Moore documentary, Sicko, but um, I saw that when it came out in the cinema um, and was very shocked by it. Because what he does in that film is partly, you know, there's a lot of interviews with people. There's the guy, for example, who cuts two of his fingers off by accident and is told, well, this finger will cost you $10,000 to put back on. This finger will cost 60000 So, you know, you're going to do one or the other or both or whatever. And he ends up having to choose which, you know, how much is he going to pay? How much can he afford? And which finger is he going to save? Uh, something like that, certainly from our perspective, is, is horrifying uh, and shocking. But the thing that struck me the thing that stayed with me really the most you know from seeing that film many years ago were these doctors who are people who have you know devoted their lives they spent many years training to do something that we think of as this kind of noble profession where they're going to save lives and help people and they end up working for these insurance companies where their job essentially is to find ways of disqualifying people uh, so that they don't get the treatment that they need there are people who are being interviewed, you know, there's a woman, for example, whose husband was denied treatment and died. Uh, and there are also, there's footage of one of the doctors testifying um, in front of some kind of like Senate committee or something, some kind of official uh, sort of investigation. And basically saying, I'm ashamed of myself. You know, I've, I've participated in this system uh, where I, as a doctor, have put my name to things knowing that um, ultimately people are going to die as a result. I have not been acting as a doctor. A doctor is supposed to be healing people. And I've basically been condemning people to death. And that, I think, is the thing that uh, is 
most shocking for me about about that kind of reality um and that kind of system and again i think is the thing that for me in critical care is what comes out is this idea that they are willfully denying people treatment when they have the resources they have the capacity they have the ability to save those lives and they're choosing not to but they don't see it that way they, they don't see it as like it, I mean, we see it that way but i think in the actual episode the doctors themselves don't see it that way um, or certainly administrator Chalek doesn't see it that way. I mean, he's not a doctor, but he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as like that he's doing this for the greater good. He's doing this to keep a society afloat. Like, you know, the doctor says, uh, the doctor from Voyager says, you know, like, I'm trying to save people. Or I'm trying to save my patient. And, you know, Chalek comes back with, I'm trying to save a society. Like, I'm not saying that Chalek is right, but I'm saying that in his mind, he is doing what he thinks is morally right. And later on, he's doing something immoral for what he, but he thinks an immoral action that will have a moral outcome. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like, the, like the, the end justifies the means. And interestingly, later in the episode, the doctor actually does something which is considered immoral. He deliberately um, makes Chalek sick in order to bring home the point that if Chalek doesn't have the right rating, he's not going to get the medical care he needs. So he sort of threatens Chalek's life in order to um, mm-hmm. make sure that you know, he, he gets the, the care to the, to the other patients that he wants to treat. Uh, and so he does something immoral for a greater good. He's willing to sacrifice Chalik to save other lives. Um, and that's almost what Chalik thinks he's doing. He's willing to sacrifice lives to save this society. Ultimately, though, isn't it a bluff? I mean, on the doctor's part, I, I know there's this agonising and at the end of the episode, he has this moment with Seven where he's saying, you know, how could I have done such a thing? I'm a doctor. Why did I infect this man? And yes, on the one level, he's he's doing it for the greater good. He thinks he's going to be able to save more patients. But he's also not actually killing the guy. It's a bit like, you know, in that DS9 episode where Cisco um, and, and Cisco does go the whole hog um, when he's chasing after Eddington and he makes that mucky planet uninhabitable, that like he launches the torpedoes at them and no one can quite believe it because we assume that he's bluffing. Well, I sort of feel in this episode with the Doctor, he knows the guy is not going to die the system is going to be changed it's going to be uh he's going to find a way of of reorganizing it reallocating it or whatever in order to ensure his own survival he's just counting on this guy's self-interest and survival instinct really to uh prove that all these rules i mean yes you're right the doctors in that episode are kind of they're not seeing themselves as responsible and i suppose that's the thing with these doctors working for insurance companies they might say well that's my job there are certain rules you know it's up to these patients to read the contract carefully and to read the fine print and to make sure that they've you know ticked the right boxes and so on uh it's not morally my responsibility but at the same time as i say that doctor was you know almost in tears kind of revealing that she kind of recognized the part that she played in this and i suppose that's sort of what the doctor is trying to get these people to see that they are making choices that yes just because someone's laid out that there's a certain rule doesn't mean that the right thing to do is to follow it and one of the things i suppose that's interesting about the episode is that the doctor does start quite quickly playing the system uh one way or another you know reallocating resources from one floor to the other uh treating patients for one condition that they don't have in order to cure a condition that they do and in some ways it does remind me actually of the kind of weird hoops that doctors jump through you know, certainly even within our own system where there are certain rules about what they are and aren't allowed to do. So for an example, one thing that doctors are not allowed to do is perform euthanasia, but they are allowed to give morphine in quantities that 
terminally ill patients will die. And often they will ask families, you know, uh, would you they'll say things i mean i've been in this situation myself with a relative where i only realized later what it was the doctor was trying to get at because they'll say things like this person is not feeling any pain they're not experiencing anything not feeling any discomfort however would you like us to give them more morphine and you sort of think well what does that mean why you know why would you do that if they're not feeling anything anyway what they mean is if if you say yes then they will give it uh because they're allowed to do that and then the result is that the patient will die so there are kind of situations like that where doctors are kind of playing their own system because they, they they know what they think is the right thing to do but there is the kind of apparatus that they have to operate within uh, and they're trying to find the best way of doing the right thing within it I mean in the doctor's case in the Voyager episode it blows up in his face because he thinks he's come up with this great solution and manages to treat all these people on red level that you know normally would only get the kind of treatment on blue level and then discovers that it's been held against them and they're being punished for his uh, working the system in that way and they're the ones who end up dead as a result. But then I guess then that's the sort of issue with this episode though then, isn't it? Because the doctor in Sicko who was um, making decisions that was going to lead to, you know, this patient's death, she was making decisions for financial reasons. She was saving the HMO money and... Um, and that was going to lead to this 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 patient's death. When in this particular episode, there's no mention of money. It's to do with resources. And there's one particular point in the episode which is really interesting. Is one of the one of the more senior doctors on Level Blue, which is like the first class private healthcare treatment, says, "You don't know what it was like before. There were famines before this. So it's a little bit like the situation we have now with the lockdown, right? So there's a lot of people worried about the economy, and I've had. So I've heard so many things over the years of why we have to sacrifice this for the economy, that for the economy. If there's one thing that a Tory government is good at, it's talking about the economy. And, you know, they will, for the sake of the economy, we're going to plunge disabled people into poverty. For the sake of the economy, we're going to make this many people redundant. For the sake of the economy, we're going to... So it's very hard to hear that, like, you know, actually people have to die for the economy, right? But there's a lockdown and the longer the lockdown goes up, goes on for the more people in this country are going to be plunged into poverty, healthy, you know, working age people, people who could have, um, who, people who got to pay their mortgages, people who have, um, who are already living in poverty are going to be plunged even to further poverty. And the sooner you, sh- you, you, you end the lockdown, the um, quicker these people can get back to work, the quicker the economy can start running again, you know, like a machine. Um, and the, the, implications are that the less people will fall into poverty or they won't fall as far into poverty. And there's a very real risk that actually the people who end up in real poverty as a result of the economy or um, crashing or a recession, or even as some experts saying a depression um, is there could be death as a result of that. I mean, not to even to mention like, you know, mental health conditions, you know, there could be stuff like hunger, there could be suicides, all that kind of thing, right? But if you end the lockdown quicker, earlier, you're going to get wave upon wave of, of coronavirus infections. You know, you're going to get a second wave, possibly a third wave, and then more people are going to die from coronavirus. So, like, it's it's like a lose-lose situation. But I feel like with the healthcare system with the HMO, it's a bit different. Where's the losing there? The losing there is the HMO will lose money because they're going to have to pay out for somebody to have life-saving treatment. It's that the people who are running the HMO are going to lose lose their profit. Um, and 
in this particular episode, because it's set in a Star Trek universe where money is not really a thing, it's not about profit. It is about them sort of saying, there's no part of the problem with the episode is they never sort of show what happens afterwards. You know, do they allocate resources in a smarter way? Was that just the thing? Was that just the, the problem that they had where they were allocating resources like inefficiently? Or is it that they actually have such a huge population that they can't provide healthcare to everybody? And then the whole planet descends into chaos again, like it did before the administrators arrived. Well, there is in a way a political element to it, certainly in the real world. I mean, I think it's extraordinary the situation we're in at the moment. We're seeing a conservative government basically doing things that if a Labour government had ever proposed them would almost have been unthinkable in any other situation. I mean, this is the most, on one level, that we are currently living with the most left-wing conservative government we've ever experienced insofar as they have reluctantly. I mean, and this was not Plan A, though, you know, plan A was this idea of herd immunity. It was this idea that basically we were going to protect the economy and sacrifice a large number of, you know, assumed to be elderly or otherwise vulnerable people um, in the way that has been called for. You know, we've had Toby Young, for example, writing uh, think pieces basically saying, you know, people should be willing to risk their lives for the sake of the economy and for the country. In America, you had... Um, I can't remember who it was, someone basically saying, yeah, certain people should be willing to die for the economy. Uh, so there is a kind of certain strand of more right-wing thought that believes that protecting the economy is sort of the most important thing. I mean, in fact, though, what we've seen is the Tories coming around, basically realising they tried to float that idea, it didn't wash at all, because the country turns out to be slightly more politically switched on and sort of basically... Um, well, either left wing or just sort of humanitarian and and uh, maybe you know, valuing don't of, die. of life exactly yeah, exactly <laughs> and, and and no you know everyone's happy for someone else to die but probably not themselves or their relatives or whatever. Um, I mean, not everyone is you you, you know that that even those people probably aren't happy for it to be their own grandmother or, or elderly relative or whoever it is. Uh, so they kind of were forced into a bit of a U-turn in a sense, you know, to the extent that you've been sharing petitions online calling for universal basic income. I mean, I don't think that is going to happen by the sounds of it, but they have already gone a long way. I mean, you know, I'm self-employed. They've put in provisions to help self-employed people. They put in provisions to help uh, people whose businesses have been affected. They've, they've ploughed a monumental amount of money into trying to help people uh, financially get through this in ways that you know, traditionally, a conservative government would not, you know, they would sort of see that as, as people's own problem to sort themselves out and their own kind of um, challenges and a sort of slightly sort of survival of the fittest and so on. So that we have seen in a way, a weird um, increase in these kind of socialist, for want of a better word, policies. And it is kind of interesting. They keep talking about the war. They keep, everyone keeps bringing us back to the war and the Blitz spirit and what it was like in the war and so on. And even the Queen we saw in her broadcast, basically quoting Vera Lynn, very canny bit of kind of PR there, I think. Um, and sort of saying, you know, I lived through the war, uh, you know, because she served obviously in the forces during the war. Um, and kind of saying, we need that sense of camaraderie. We need that sense of community again. And it's fascinating, I think, not only that the, the Tories should be able to kind of summon that. And of course, Boris Johnson has always wanted to be Winston Churchill. And in so, you know, he's, he's written a biography of Winston Churchill. He sort of models himself on Winston Churchill to some extent. And I think that's one of the reasons that he has this kind of larger than life personality in a way uh, and projects this sort of image of himself um, as ridiculous as it may seem. In some ways, he's almost maybe in this, he's, he's kind of found a way to 
to live that out um, to some extent or, or to, to kind of bring us back to that sort of wartime situation. And it was, of course, the war that gave us the NHS because, you know, it was in the years after the war that suddenly the country did sort of move massively to the left and and you know people wanted this kind of welfare system they wanted this sense that you know we'd all got through this terrible thing together uh by seeing ourselves as sort of you know one people and there had to be some kind of recognition of that and some kind of payback of that once the war was finally over so you know who knows people have been saying maybe once we come out of this crisis are we going to build a better world are we going to build a better country is it going to be a moment to be seized to sort of um try to improve a lot of things. I mean, is the NHS finally going to get the funding that it has desperately needed for many years and actually be saved from being driven into the ground? Because for years, people have been saying, you know, the Tories are deliberately defunding things like the NHS in order to justify privatising them because they can say, look, this thing isn't working. We'll bring in a private company and they'll do it on a different model and that will be more successful. So I would say in, in the Star Trek episode, yes, there is that kind of argument being made they have to make some argument, don't they, to justify it? Because on the face of it, what they're doing is so obviously immoral. So they have to have some kind of justification for it. I would sort of question, you know, is that necessarily, okay, maybe they did that for what they thought was a good reason, but that doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. You know, there may have been other alternatives that were ignored or that were not taken on board. And the fact is they have ended up with this deeply unequal uh, and quite cruel system as a result of it. Well, I guess you have to ask, like, you know, if there aren't enough resources to go around, why are there not enough resources to go around? It's a bit like mm. asking, like, you know, well, when somebody in the news starts saying, well, this is so unprecedented, you have to ask, well, like, is it? And and why is it so unprecedented? I mean, perhaps maybe we could have prepared for a pandemic because there were studies done in 2016 to show that the UK was woefully inadequate, you know, uh, like, basically unprepared for a pandemic and that a pandemic was like almost top of the risks for this country because we would do another pandemic, worldwide pandemic. Um, and that scientists have been warning about that for years. I mean, you could ask like, why aren't the, like, why aren't the resources there? And I think that's maybe one of the things that they just don't have time to show in a Star Trek episode. But that would be one of the questions maybe Janeway would ask when she arrives at this planet is like, so, you know, what, you say that you have to have this healthcare system like this, which allocates resources based on merit um, or usefulness of the individual. But because, you know, you don't have enough resources before that and, you know, the whole society was falling apart. Well, why? You know, like, like you said, maybe there are other options. And I think that the, one of the things I noticed in Star Trek, and I don't know whether they do this deliberately, but nobody lives in a mansion. Maybe Picard and his, uh, his uh, his big house, you know, in the vineyard. His, whatever Rafi calls it, his fancy chateau. Yeah, but you, know, you yeah. feel like he's that. That's like kind of inherited. I mean, that's inherited wealth, I guess. That's not exactly very good either. And it's unusual. It's it's certainly unusual. But he's also sharing it. With, he's sharing it with two Romulans. He's sharing it with two Romulans. They live there with him. Do you know what I mean? But, they, look, they have to work for their board. Yeah, though, but, but, but almost, <laughs> and almost they have to make the breakfast ev- or whatever. Every but yeah, yeah. other Star Trek. Um, you know, TV series or film. I mean, I'm thinking about like Picard's quarters in the search for Spock. They're not that massive. Do you know what I mean? Like he's an admiral. He's probably fairly wealthy by this point. Kirk's quarters. Kirk's quarters in search for Spock. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, nobody seems to be. He's got a nice view, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. They're not living a kind of palatial. So maybe we've got to ask the question, like, you know, people are talking about minimum wage, you know, they're talking about universal basic income. They're talking about all these things. Perhaps we need to maybe ask, should there be a maximum wage? Shock horror. 
Okay, sort of like Trekker Femme listeners, you know, you're thinking Clara's a, a communist. But like, what I'm saying is that like, maybe nobody should ever be allowed to get so wealthy that they have more money than they could ever spend in their lifetime. Because that money could be reallocated somewhere else to keep somebody else afloat. I have long argued for universal basic income. And every single time I've been in a social situation, normally a dinner party, where I've talked about universal basic income, I've always come up against the same arguments again and again, which is that it would grind our economy to a halt. Because if people didn't have to work in order to pay their rent or pay their mortgage, if people had enough money to survive without having to go to their jobs, why would people work? Nobody once asked the question, what would happen if no one could work? How would anyone stay afloat? And this is the prime example. No one can work except for key workers, obviously, like we were saying, what would happen when people can't run their businesses? And I think that is when something like this becomes useful. And there are situations in Star Trek where you see people working away, you know, normally we're in Starfleet, so people are always got a job to do. But there are situations in Star Trek where you see, you know, people, and you're never quite sure what they're actually doing. Like, do they have jobs? You know, like, what kind of lives are they living? But apart from sort of like, I guess we're seeing like now in Picard, like the Romulan outposts and stuff, people are living perhaps in bad situations or like the Maquis were living in bad situations. Um, but most people in the Star Trek universe seem to have a fairly okay life, like enough to eat. They have access to medical care, you know, uh, they have leisure time. They don't, and apart from the fact that there's a lot of war in the Star Trek universe, which is another whole mm. other subject, I mean, it does make you question that maybe that providing people with the basic needs that they have, um, helping people, providing people with the care and and also fulfilling their basic needs, um, and maybe will lead to a society where when something catastrophic does happen, people don't fall through the cracks. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, who knows? I, like I say, I think it's, I'm, not holding out too much hope that this crisis is going to transform our country or transform the world. But it, it may do in some ways. It may leave legacies. And certainly, you know, the war was a pretty awful experience for civilians uh, in Britain who lived through it. But it did lead to various positive changes, you know, most notable of all, probably the National Health Service. So I guess that's a possibility. I mean, who knows? That would be nice to think. That would be the kind of Star Trek ending, wouldn't it? We all come through it together and, you know we're better for it and we learn something from it. And I think, you know, seriously, though, it is encouraging to see, as you say, the sort of local groups of volunteers helping in various ways. Um, You know, that clapping for the NHS is not just about valuing the NHS. I think it is also, it's very powerful because it is a kind of way of coming together as a society and as a community and feeling like, you know, I've uh, gone out and, you know, stood on the street outside my front door and, and, and joined in with that. And you're communing with your, you know, from a safe distance with your neighbours, effectively, because everyone's doing the same thing. And you're all, it's a moment of kind of solidarity, in a way, everyone is saying the same thing. And yes, in this instance, they're specifically applauding those doctors, nurses, those kind of key workers, frontline workers, basically. But they're also kind of saying, we're all on the same page here, you know, we're, we're, we're all doing the same thing. And one of the interesting things here about the social distancing, and I don't know how this compares in other countries where they've had different kinds of lockdowns and so on, is the way that the government has sold it is they, 
have played absolutely on this kind of love for the health service, this kind of passionate belief in the health service, because the phrase they use is stay home, protect the NHS. Now, they're actually not just saying protect the elderly, you know, protect your your mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and so on, who are, I mean, my mother, for example, is completely you know, locked down because she's in that age group. Uh, so she's not supposed to be going out for um, her daily exercise. I don't think she's, you know, she's not allowed to go to the supermarket in the way that I am and so on. Um, but they're not saying do these things to protect those people. They're actually saying protect the NHS, protect the capacity of the NHS to treat people so that we don't get to this uh, nightmare scenario where basically more people are coming in than can possibly be treated and people are just left to die, are denied treatment because that is the real horror in a sense, isn't it, is that people are just going to be refused treatment because there aren't enough beds or enough ventilators for them and they're going to, you know, die waiting to be seen. But also protect those people who are working there because we have seen huge numbers of doctors and nurses, you know, contracting this disease and dying from it. And I was quite shocked when they first started talking about this before we had the lockdown and everything. Uh, and they had stuff, news coming in from Italy, which was quite scary and quite shocking, but we sort of hadn't got to grips with the idea that the same thing was going to happen to us. I saw a doctor on the news who was saying, you know, this is real, this is going to be really tough and our colleagues are going to be dying. And I sort of couldn't quite believe that she was saying that because I don't think we've had, I can't think of another situation uh, in my lifetime where we've had a scenario where doctors and nurses are literally in, in danger of their lives to that extent. I suppose with 9-11, we had the firefighters and so on who were developing all these kind of health conditions and so on. I think on. in other parts of the world, that's been the case though. Like that's, that's, that's the thing. I think, I just think the narrative that exists in the press and also that our government is giving, and I would say maybe perhaps a lot of governments are giving um, around the world, is that this is something that is unprecedented this is something that is unusual and it's not it's unusual to us because it hasn't existed or ha it hasn't happened to us we don't have personal experience of it but we're being asked to use our imagination i think there are lots of people who work in medical institutions around the world like for instance you can watch a whole number of documentaries about doctors working in aleppo and syria you know where hospitals were deliberately targeted by Assad's forces. Um, so I think, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that's a different situation. That's war. That's not uh, infectious disease. But right away, uh, it was quite clear from the beginning that um, from what was happening in other countries, the capacity in a healthcare system with the rate of infection are two things that were very serious and could potentially come together at a particular point and create a huge pressure. And I think that that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is everyone's acting like this is something that has never happened before. That's not the case. Not the case at all. Um, even just un just over a hundred years ago, it was happening with the influenza outbreak in 1918. Um, it's just that it hasn't happened to us personally. And that's part of the problem. That's what kind of is what healthcare is all about. If you have in a in a socialized healthcare system you have to be able to pay for people who are having health problems that you do not have i don't have experience of cancer i mean i do my mom's had cancer but i personally haven't had cancer at the moment i don't i'm not really at risk for cancer but i'm willing to put my tax money towards cancer care you know i don't want cancer patients in this country to have to rely on medical insurance that they can or cannot pay so this isn't 
uh, it's just that we personally ourselves have never lived through it. And so, and I think that's probably kind of, that's, that's the point of Star Trek as well is like being able to care about people who have a different experience of your own than your, than your own and being able to actually understand, understand people's different experiences and different points of view to look at everybody together collectively and not just your own narrow point of view. So I would say that. Yeah, it's unusual and it's unusual and it's weird and it's scary for us. But many people have lived through stuff like this already in the past. And there have been people who've been living in lockdown in other situations around the world in recent history. So I would be very careful by by saying that like, we don't have we don't have enough knowledge of this kind of thing because we do. Well, some people do. The experts do. I suppose the, the, the man on the street or the woman on the street doesn't. And that's part of the... And the politicians don't necessarily because, as we know, they weren't going to the briefings and they weren't paying attention and they were not listening necessarily to those experts. And even as I say, I was watching the news, hearing this doctor saying doctors and nurses are going to be dying in large numbers and thinking that must be an exaggeration that can't possibly be true because, you know, because exactly in my experience, even when there've been outbreaks of things, uh, you, you know, sort of a, a medical outbreak of something, uh, or even, you know, going back to say something like um, HIV was a massive, you, you know, in some ways a similar situation, but I don't think you were having, you know, the, 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 the transmission system there was such that the doctors would not be, I mean, the whole, you know, that whole thing with Princess Diana shaking hands with the HIV patients the AIDS patients was basically saying you know this is safe there's not a danger to people coming in contact with them in this instance it is very much it does feel I mean people are calling it the plague you, you know it does feel almost like the plague there's this kind of paranoia and this idea of you know staying away from people and kind of um, anyone could be a threat to your very life um, and obviously that means that the doctors who in many cases as we know are not being properly protected you know they're not receiving the uh, equipment they need I mean there's been a lot of debates here in the UK about people not getting the masks and gowns and things that they need. In America, there were nurses who died because they were using uh, bin bags because they didn't have appropriate um, clothing. And I heard someone talking, a reporter who was saying, though, you know, in the very hospital where those nurses were lacking the equipment at the time, there was a film crew filming them and all the film crew had the appropriate equipment that they needed, uh, you know, because their uh, TV company or whatever had paid for them to have it. But the hospital or the, you know, whatever the system was, had not paid for the nurses to have it. And therefore they were risking their lives quite, um, you know, directly. But I guess it also raises this question of, I mean, this Voyager episode, it's called Critical Care. I mean, we've had a lot of talk here in the UK about intensive care. And, you know, what does it mean to go into intensive care? We had a prime minister taken into intensive care, something that I think, I have no idea when the last time that might have happened would be, but certainly not within our lifetimes and not, I think, within uh, many people's lifetimes, that something that drastic, you know, we were literally at the point where the prime minister could have died, uh, potentially, we were being told. Now, in the episode, there's this interesting discussion about critical care uh, because the doctor says, oh, level, they, they keep talking about level blue. The doctor says, oh, level blue must be your critical care area. And the administrator, I think it is, comes back uh, with, uh, he, he, he says something like, level blue is the area where it's most critical that we provide good care. It's not, so the idea, of, you, you know, something is not critical because it's uh, a matter of life or death. It's kind of prioritised according to need, according to danger. It's critical because it's prioritised 
sort of politically. It's a decision has been made that this thing is more important than that thing. Um, so I suppose it kind of raises all these questions. I also sort of wonder whether there's a bit of a pun in the title of the episode that it's critical care insofar as it's kind of critiquing the system uh, of the care that's being provided as well. But I think it is unusual, the situation that we're living at, that, that we're living in, that people are not only getting ill, not only going to hospital and so on, but they're going into this absolute crisis situation, this life or death situation, this ward where, you know, the likelihood of coming out is not necessarily particularly uh, high. You know, some people have been saying once you go in there, you've kind of got a 50-50 chance of surviving even. And that is understandably extremely scary for people. I think, I think yeah, again, it comes down to personal experience. I myself have been not in intensive care, but I've been in acute care ward, like literally minutes away from being put on a ventilator myself because I have acute asthma. Um, and so as soon as somebody started talking about ventilators, I knew exactly what they were talking about. Um, and one of my work colleagues at the time was like, oh, well, as long as they've got enough ventilators. And I almost felt like saying, well, actually, you don't want to ever be put on a ventilator because your chances of surviving on a ventilator are 50-50. Um, and you do realise they have to sedate you like completely put you under to put a ventilator put you on a ventilator um coming off one's very hard and she had no idea and that's she had no idea because she didn't know what a ventilator was and she'd never been in a situation where she couldn't breathe properly whereas i had so i knew what that meant but i think this is a really good life lesson for everybody because it, it's allowing us to see that what applies to one person doesn't fit everybody. So for instance, you know, um, I read about a case where a young man, um, ha he was living with his boyfriend, his boyfriend caught the virus, his boyfriend then passed it to him. His boyfriend was sort of sick for like four or five days, but not, you know, like had a mild fever, felt a bit tired, but managed to be okay. He passed it on to him and he was ill for like, two and a half weeks and he had to go to hospital to be put on oxygen and he could barely stand without any sort of, he had like a fever for like 10 days straight and he could barely stand. He was too, he's too, too exhausted to stand. And you know, he's like 35 years old in the prime of his life. Um, and you think, well, it just affects elderly people, people who already have health conditions, blah, blah, blah. And there may be some truth in that, but there's also this, there's also this truth, which is that what, how a disease affects one person it will affect another person completely differently. And that's actually a good lesson for everything in life. You know, just because you have a personal experience of this doesn't mean that somebody's not going to have a completely different experience of that situation. Like, you know, somebody has this reaction to that, um, and then someone has a completely different reaction to the same thing. It's, it's, it's a good lesson that everybody's different and that we have to kind of think about everybody when we're thinking about medical care, when we're thinking about financial aid when we're thinking about you know life experience we're thinking about you know life choices quality of life everything um so it's 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 a good life lesson to learn i think that this isn't something you can just write off as in this is only going to affect all of this one demographic or it's only going to affect people in this certain way i think some of the people i know who are young and healthy and have been quite sick have been really shocked that it affected them this way they thought they were kind of immune, you know, um, and not, I don't obviously think people should have to get ill to learn this. People should be able to learn this in a much milder way, hopefully. <laughs> but it is a definitely a lesson to learn that like our personal experience of one thing isn't necessarily universal or the same type of experience. I think the interesting thing about this episode, like critical, is that 
it all comes down to who determines what is critical. And there's a, a moment in the episode where the, I think the administrator says, Chalik says something like, he's not essential or he's not important or he says something like that. And the doctor says, important to whom? Or essential to whom? Because obviously this young man who sadly dies, and I'm glad that the writers decided to kill him because they needed to hammer that point home. I thought he was going to like recover and become a doctor and I was glad that they didn't have a happy ending. Um, is that he is essential. It's, it's just like, how do you determine critical? How do you determine essential? Do you determine critical or essential because people are, you know, I don't know, like really educated and they are... Um, you know, agricultural engineers, like one of the characters in the show, or do you determine they're essential because they are really um, supportive to people in their community? Um, or do you determine they're really essential because they have three kids at home? You know, is someone who's childless and not got dependents less and less critical than someone who has got kids? You know, do, or are they really critical because, you know, they provide some essential service or are they critical because like everyone's critical, aren't they really? Like, you could ask anyone's loved ones and they would say, yeah, this person's critical to me. This, I suppose, came up with the question of, you know, the prime minister being in intensive care. And there were these sort of questions raised, uh, you know, is he getting the same treatment? And I don't really know what the right answer to that is, because, I mean, you know, is he getting the same treatment as everyone else in that ward? He talked about, didn't he, how there were these two nurses basically standing by his bed. Uh, 24-7, checking all his readings and so on. Now, I assume that not everyone who goes into intensive care is getting quite that level of, um, you know, dedicated support. Uh, but it is interesting that he was on a ward, you know, he wasn't in a private hospital, he was on a ward with other patients in a similar situation. Uh, and I just, I don't know what the kind of... Um, we have seen inequalities in the system, say, around the testing. I mean, you know, how did Idris Elba get tested so quickly? How did Prince Charles get tested when these tests are supposedly not available? It does sort of seem like the rich and the famous and the kind of um, influential figures uh, have access to things that the rest of us seem to be denied. Uh, even medical, frontline medical staff are being denied when they say they need them. But you're right, on one level, if you're looking at it from a medical point of view, the criteria are different. And actually, you know, it's it's not that everyone is equal necessarily, because as I've said, you know, there is a mechanism of triage. There are systems in play in which one person gets seen before another, and therefore one person does get prioritised. And even in Star Trek, the doctor talks about in that episode, um, Latent Image, you know, how he would make a medical decision to save one patient rather than another if he can't treat both of them at the same time. But that would be made on medical grounds, not on financial or other, you know, whatever your kind of this quotient that they keep talking about in the episode, whatever your system is of valuing one person more than another. And that's really the key thing is from a medical standpoint, it's very important that everyone is basically treated as equal albeit medically there might be reasons to treat some people differently from others. And I suppose when you get into this question, yeah, as you say, you know, does it make a difference if someone has children who are relying on them? Does it make a difference um, if they're younger or older? Uh, and I guess it makes a difference if they're older purely because their their likelihood of surviving is different and therefore that becomes a kind of medical factor. But it is sort of tricky in some ways, isn't it? Because you could say, you know, you might have a 70-year-old in fine fettle and in very good health who you know could live for another 
20 or 25 years and you might have someone much younger who was in you know a much worse state so in making these kind of decisions incredibly difficult very challenging and really that's the that's the other reason they've been saying you know protect the nhs protect the nhs from having to make these unspeakable uh, i mean we did an episode on sophie's choice these kind of almost sophie's choices potentially in terms of treatment it's not just that we want to limit the number of people dying though obviously that's a huge part of it it's that we don't want to plunge ourselves into this hellish uh situation where people you know even with good intentions are making these terrible decisions that are hard to live with and you know you can see the way that it haunts say the woman in that documentary sicko who's who's made these awful decisions because of the uh insurance apparatus that she's become embroiled in because she's taken a job working for this insurance company you can see in critical care the doctor is sort of trying to open these doctors eyes saying to them you know look what you're um contributing to look what you're playing a role in look what you're kind of um uh you, you know you're continuing this system you're, you're you're kind of propping up this system to some extent where are those kind of moral decisions and judgments made and what are the you know how can we create a system that doesn't end up having these kind of immoral aspects to it i suppose a, a system that is just that is fair that is equal that is that, that, that is because if it's generally genuinely a, a social system if it is you, you know as in our case a national health service it's supposed to be for everyone then it's very important that it be seen to be fair, that it be seen to treat everyone equally, that it be seen to kind of um, operate on a fair basis. Yeah, and I mean, these sort of decisions that you're talking about are decisions that are going to have to be made by people on the front line, you know, actual medical staff. And one of the things I thought was amazing about critical care was that the decision was made by Chalik. Well, it was made by the computer, actually. They got like the sort of anonymous, unemotional computer to make the decision. And then they got Chalik to sort of administrate it. And he says something, doesn't he, in the episode, which I thought was really interesting, which was he says something like, I make the decisions that my employers employ me to make because they don't want to have to make them. So it's like, it's almost as if the NHS, like, it's almost as if like emergency room doctors, A&E NHS doctors were like, I don't want to decide between these two patients. I'm going to go to like this computer screen and I'm going to punch in some buttons and I'm going to make this computer choose for me instead. Or they just went to some random person in an office, like some administrator in an office. And they were like, look, we've got this difficult decision to make. I don't want to make it. You make it for me. And no, no doctor in the NHS would do that. Like, you know, that's not how like doctors in our world work. And yet that is kind of how it works in America, isn't it? Because that's what you see in that documentary sicko is that is how that insurance system is working it is the decisions are sort of being referred up to some bureaucratic level where people are just sitting in offices stamping forms and making these decisions about people's lives really they're not being taken on the ground and i think that's the key thing and you're right in the episode okay it's a computer that does it and this sort of goes back all the way to you know in in the original series there were all these episodes where there turned out to be some sort of heartless computer running things and the sort of horror of the society run by a computer one way or another uh but it is absolutely it's almost the 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 system is is heartless that's i suppose that's it there's no compassion in there that you know the doctor comes in despite being a machine himself you know despite being a hologram comes in with this very human compassion instantly sees people suffering and wants to help them and then finds that there's this system which sort of it dictates all these rules for who can be helped and in what way uh and as you're right as you say that they've they've sort of um taken responsibility for those ethical questions away from themselves by putting it on this computer and saying well it's just a calculation it's just a formula uh, it's a quotient it's you know um 
something that is is the decision is taken on this very abstract level, um, not on the personal human. Yeah, level. and I think the fact that like they've done that means that they kind of don't want to make these decisions, and if they don't want to make those decisions, it's because they're upsetting difficult decisions. And if like, do you know what I mean? As in, like maybe there is an element of something wrong in in the decision that they're making. Otherwise, why would they find it so hard to do? I think. I think what I would really love to see is like a follow-up episode of Critical Care, like Critical Care Part 2, where they go back and they have a conversation with the politicians who run that country or run that, run that, run that planet. Because I think, because he talks about the people who hired him to make these decisions. And I'm like, who are these people who hired you? They, they obviously don't want to make these decisions and they want to hire this administrator to come in and put this allocated computer and do it. It's like that George Clooney film where he goes around firing people. Have you seen that one? Yeah, he's, up in he's the, the guy who's brought in to yeah to sack people on behalf of these companies that don't want to do it themselves. Yeah, and, and and then you think, well, if you really don't want to do this, and it's really that bad and that difficult to do, maybe it's because it's something that isn't right. You know, like maybe it's because it's something you shouldn't be doing. I mean, obviously, I, when I'm not talking to the, talking about the NHS in this respect because. You know, they're like, they, they aren't making financial decisions. Well, to a certain extent, I guess a postcode lottery is, but they're not making financial decisions like in terms of HMO, um, HMOs in, in the US. Mm. But like, if you're going to actually, you know, make a decision that's going to destroy somebody's life uh, and you really feel that it's possibly the wrong thing to do and you're uncomfortable about it, maybe that's because it is the wrong thing to do. The thing that struck me the most about the documentary Sicko, but also the American system, um, and I hope I don't offend any Americans when I say this, which is that it seems like giving people the healthcare and the treatment that they need is expensive and that keeping people alive and giving, uh, allowing them to have operations and paying for the operations is expensive. And that short of people continuing to pay in to their, to their insurance, their medical insurance, if they survive, whatever, and they continue living on. I just don't know if these insurance companies or are ever going to reap back the money that they have um, spent on people. Like, I do wonder a little bit sometimes, after all the healthcare treatment I've had on the NHS, if I'm going to end up costing the NHS more that I'll be putting into it. Hopefully not. Hopefully by the end of my life, hopefully I'll have years of healthy life ahead of me. And hopefully by the end of my life, I'll put more money into the NHS than I will have taken out of it. But in the capitalist system, you know, it's about making money. Money is king. Profit is important. And keeping people healthy isn't a money-making enterprise. Do you I mean, you can't really make money off healthy people. They, They can go to work and they can generate income for the economy. But... Like paying for someone to have, it's not like a transaction. Like you, you pay, you pay for someone to have a drug and do you end up with a healthier person or you pay for someone to have treatment and they end up with a healthier person, but you don't end up with a profit off the back of that. It's not like selling ice cream where you might get a profit. Do you know what I mean? And so I think in a way that is one of the major issues with a profit based healthcare system. And that in the, in terms of the HMO, like they're not, it's not, they're not just concerned about resources. They don't want to even give the resources because they don't want to lose money. Whereas at least in critical care, they have the resources. They just can't, they're just basically bad at allocating them. I suppose it also, it comes down to whether you see treatment uh, as a right, you know, in the same way as you might see, whether you see something like housing as a right uh, or not. I mean, there are certain things that in all countries, people agree need to be socialised to some extent. I mean, okay, maybe not, you know, we've seen these protests recently with these people with their guns and protesting about the lockdown and so on in the States. And, and, you know, this kind of idea of these kind of, 
the right to bear arms is tied up with this idea of local militias. But most people believe that you should have a police force uh, to maintain safety of citizens. Okay, well, that is a social, uh, you, you know, that to me, that's not fundamentally any different to having a health service. They believe that someone should be maintaining the roads that they're driving on. You, you know, there are things if you're going to live in a modern society that have to be taken care of collectively. And um, for those of us in, you know, Britain and in Europe, generally, where healthcare is considered one of those things, uh, it's just, it's kind of, I think for most people, it's sort of a given that if you get sick, uh, you should be looked after. That should, that is part of the kind of social, um, you know, the kind of social contract that is part of being in a society, of being a part of something, is that on some basic level, we, you know, we look after each other. But I think it's interesting when you talk about these kind of uh, the the computer and the role of the computer, these kind of inhuman decisions that are being taken, whether they're being taken by a literally inhuman computer or, as you say, one of these kind of evil administrators who makes abstract decisions uh, and, and is never on the ground to see how they play out. I mean, we do see that even in something like the NHS. You know, there has been a kind of creeping privatisation to some extent of the NHS, which has changed some of the ways that it operates. And you do find if you access the NHS uh, and you go in and doctors will sometimes say things to you, a bit like they, they say about the morphine, you, you know, do you want the, the, the morphine that doesn't quite make sense? They will sort of nudge you towards saying, you know, do you have the means to go private with this problem? Because basically we'll do whatever we can. This is what we can do. We can do this, this and this. You might have to wait nine months for this thing. You might have to wait a long time for this thing. And sometimes they'll sort of say, oh, you know, but if you... um you know, if you can afford it, there's another route and I'll, I'll give you the phone number of the person to ring or I'll tell you how to do it. And actually, even in NHS hospitals, there are kind of private appointments happening in the same buildings because they're, they're hiring the offices from the NHS and the same consultants are doing a mixture of their NHS work and their kind of private work. So th there is this kind of weird system where the two things are coming into very much living sort of side by side in a slightly uncomfortable way, to me anyway. But you also see this thing and this kind of came in really with the uh, new Labour government under Tony Blair and so on, I think. This kind of treatment of the NHS as a, a sort of publishing figures, almost like sort of league tables and so on. So trying to, treating the the user as a consumer as much as a patient in a sense. And, and this idea that they need to have information to make decisions. And you can, to a certain extent, like you say, you can choose your GP surgery or whatever. But sometimes these things lead to weird ways i mean the doctors i say were sort of gaming the system on that planet or on that floating hospital above that planet or whatever but um we get weird things so like my gp surgery i mean actually notably since i've moved out of london you see a doctor much more quickly it's a lot easier to access healthcare all of this stuff is much much easier whereas where i was living in south london it was you know it was tricky but where i was living in london to see a doctor, you had to ring at eight o'clock on the dot in the morning and then you would get through. There would already be basically if you rang at one minute to eight, you wouldn't get through. If you rang at 8.15, it was kind of pointless. All the appointments had gone. So there's this mad scrum in the morning uh, to get the appointments that are doled out. And you, you, you know, you're kind of you're on hold with 20 other people all waiting at the same time. It's this insane system. And I'm sure that is to do with some kind of uh, they want to be able to say everyone is being responded to within a certain period of time or everyone is being seen within 48 hours or whatever it is so they won't they you call at eight o'clock and if they've run out of appointments for that day and the next day they'll tell you to call again another day they won't make the appointment for later in the week or whatever because they don't want to say that people are waiting days for an appointment well the fact is all that means is you're, you're sort of massaging your figures in a sense you know you're, cre you're creating a mad situation in order to make things look better than they 
genuinely are. You're not actually creating capacity or speeding up how fast you're seeing people, really. You're just kind of making them jump through ridiculous hoops and telling them, oh, sorry, you, you know, you, you weren't fast enough on the in the queue and therefore you're not going to get seen this time. Try again tomorrow. And then we can say everyone gets seen within two days or whatever it is where you actually might have waited three days. So there is that danger, I think. And it does remind me a little bit of the idea of handing it over to a computer. It's a bit like in the episode Justice in Next Gen, Picard has this line, there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute. You need a human touch in a way to make those kind of decisions. If you hand it all over to these kind of mechanisms and these systems and so on, and there's no flexibility and there's no humanity in there, the danger is that it becomes just a sort of almost it becomes kind of arbitrary at one level. And and then also that it becomes this weird game of people trying to work around the system and trying to play the system and trying to game the system and work out, uh, you know, sort of how to make it work for them. But it's lost that essential uh, human touch and that kind of human interaction, which is so much a part of healthcare in particular, you know, that relationship between the doctor and the patient and the doctor's kind of desire to, to help that patient. And that, I suppose, is what we see with the doctor from Voyager is he is in some ways a more old-fashioned kind of doctor on one level. He's not used to dealing with bureaucracy and institutions and paperwork and all this kind of thing. He's just used to, he gets activated because someone comes in and they're sick and he does whatever he can to treat them. And then he, you know, blips off or or goes off to the holodeck or whatever he does. You you know, in some ways you could say the sort of Star Trek model is almost a more old-fashioned model. It's, It's a doctor who isn't compromised by all these kind of problems of bureaucracy, problems of, you know, do I take some private work on the side? You know, how do I uh, balance these different elements in my life? Are are there kind of moral quandaries that I'm being faced with where there's, you know, external influences coming into play or whatever? You you know, he's able to exist in a very sort of pure and untarnished environment. He's like a country town doctor. Exactly, yeah. And with McCoy, of course, is the ultimate kind of old country. You know, you you should wait a family doctor. McCoy is the kind of ultimate family doctor. I think think. the irony about this whole thing is that, like, the doctor is a machine. Like, I know we love him, just like we love data, you know, like with their characters, their people, they have sentience. Um, But the doctor is a hologram and he is generated by a machine. And I was like, this is like a more empathic, nicer machine than the allocator who, you know, like, obviously is this un, un, like, sort of unimaginative kind of just basically a computer. But, um, yeah, and I thought, it, I thought it was kind of a nice twist in this episode that the most empathic doctor, with, with the, obviously with the exception of the doctor on um, Red Level, who was trying to do his best with the situation that he's in. He's a product of his system, isn't he? But, like, the most empathic doctor in this whole episode was actually an artificial intelligence doctor. <laughs> So, you know, um, he is a machine. He's just a moral and empathic machine. Um, and he's evolved, I suppose, beyond his programming. Um, but yeah, he's definitely, he definitely goes in there and shakes things up. And I, I would like to know what happens afterwards. I felt like that was the one weakness, well, one of the weaknesses of the episode. It's a very good episode. It reminded me a lot of the original series where they go into, a, a, you know, a, a world which is basically an allegory for something that's happening in the real world. Um, and they go in and it's this like real injustice happening and they basically go in and they mess things up and they change things around and then they're like, bye! And they fly off into space. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> what happened after that? 
And Voyager, of course, is the one Star Trek series that literally can't do that because they can't go back to these planets because they're on this, you know, forward journey. In practice, Star Trek doesn't ever go back to these planets. Although I know with the Lower Deck series, we're getting a ship that is a second contact ship. So basically, they are the ones who sort of go in and clean up after. They kind of clean up the diplomatic mess that's been made of first contact by whoever, uh, whatever sort of higher ranking personnel were involved in that uh, and do the kind of uh, more sort of dog's body work. So in a way, it would be interesting, yeah, to find out how did these things change. And we don't know, I don't think, you know, all those planets where Kirk went and smashed whatever machine was running things and told them they'd all be happier without it. Who knows what happened next um, and how that worked out for them all. But there is certainly a sense. I mean, it's not... There's never any mention of the Prime Directive in this episode, but there, there is, it is on one level a kind of Prime Directive situation in some ways in that there is this system that is existing in this society and the Doctor is basically just coming in and saying, your system is crap, you know, you need to change the system. Uh, I'm not working within this system. Uh, you shouldn't be working within the system. And that other Doctor that you, you mentioned, I mean... Yeah, he is kind of basically a humanitarian and a decent guy, but he is fairly compromised. He, he's he's a bit slow to kind of wake up to it all. And he does wake up to it all and he does kind of do the right thing and so on. But it's not like he just needs to be shown the way and then he's totally signed up and committed or whatever. He's, I think, quite realistically, it's a bit of a harder sell than that, that the Doctor has to to do on it. But I think you're right, it does feel in some ways a bit like a TOS episode. It is absolutely like Star Trek doing kind of rip from the headlines, social commentary. It is a kind of very traditional Star Trek episode. And Voyager did do, you know, some of these episodes, I think often quite effectively. I mean, another episode from around the same time is the episode Repentance, which kind of looks at capital punishment and, and the prison system and so on. And again, I mean, some people I think would criticise Voyager, they say Voyager sort of lacks teeth. And I think in some ways, there is something a bit murky about this episode. There is this sort of slight, the fact that people can read it as criticising different things, that people can almost take opposite readings out of it, I think is a weakness of it. And I do think in some ways the refusal to talk about money is part of the problem because really the inequalities that we have in the the healthcare system, you, you know, certainly in the American healthcare system, but even in healthcare systems, you know, even somewhere like this, where as I say, okay, the NHS will treat you, but they also might nudge you towards private treatment if they think you can afford it. Money is the key thing that is causing all these problems. And obviously, you know, maybe Star Trek in the 90s is not going to come out with a, a, a kind of Marxist uh, take on that necessarily, as much as the Federation does appear to be this sort of socialist utopia, effectively. They're always slightly, almost slightly embarrassed about kind of uh, putting their finger on that you know most of the time they never kind of explain how do they it's like Jean-Luc Jean no, Jean Picard is like works, yeah. there's no poverty there's no hunger and I'm like yeah but how though like <laughs> but that's fair enough well replicators <laughs> I think we just have to assume replicators you can replicate everything <laughs> there's no there's no need for money because goods are kind of um you know but of course there are there are bigger you know that's a whole economics question to be worked out and also whether it's really true that the whole of the federation has moved beyond all of this or is it just that people in starfleet get quite well looked after they get as you say decent but not palatial quarters in some way they get paid or at least they have access to resources that they need in order to trade with other people but you know it may well be that not everyone is experiencing the same level of equality in a sense as what we typically see on screen but certainly life in the federation seems to be better than life on this planet in the delta quadrant and i guess you know in some ways yes it's easy to have the alien planet and say yeah well we're better than that you know our system is better than that but i think uh in this case it's a message that sort of needs to be heard certainly it needs to be heard by the people on that planet 
And maybe it does need to be heard from those viewers watching it uh, originally. And the episode, uh, of course, I mean, we should probably mention this before, but the episode is written by James Kahn, who is someone with a medical background himself. And he he also wrote the Voyager episode Lineage, which again has a kind of medical storyline with Bilana and her unborn uh, child and the the kind of... um, ethics around that and also we talked about in terms of sort of perinatal mental health and kind of whether there's an element of uh that going into that story they talk about sort of pregnancy hormones affecting balana's behavior and so on so he seems like a writer who sort of brought his interest in medicine into star trek in a way and i think this is obviously the key episode for that that he's you know basically put into a star trek episode a critique of well certainly from our point of view the american healthcare system arguably flaws in any healthcare system i suppose some people would say and i think without i mean i i think it absolutely is about the american system this episode fundamentally uh, and the publicity around it at the time all the interviews that say robert picardo was doing and so on were absolutely saying it was about the american insurance system and so on at the time and the hmos and so on but at the same time there are elements in there that we can pick out that are really about the experience of delivering healthcare in the modern world where you're not just a you know local country doctor with your you know handful of patients you are working within institutions one way or another and institutions inevitably compromise individual agency to some extent um, and there may be good reasons for that there may be positives associated with that but there are problems and issues that get thrown up along the way as well yeah and i guess as well like yeah again it comes to this idea of like people's worth as well doesn't it and that is something you find again and again in star trek as a theme in so many episodes i'm thinking like ds9 episode past tense people's worth like what do people deserve in society like how is their worth determined um do people have an intrinsic worth um do some people deserve more than others and that's that's the theme that i think that you see again and again in today's world in lots of different countries um and it, people really wrestle with it and they probably have in the past they probably will in the future um but yeah it's one of those things that they talk about a lot in star trek and it's definitely reflected in this episode um very explicitly in terms of this computer allocating people <laughs> based on their worth and it's something that we're particularly aware of at the moment as we face this situation where any one of us could find ourselves you know in as you say you know not just the elderly any one of us could find ourselves in dire medical need at any moment and you know at least in this country we are confident that the best efforts will be made on our behalf, you know, regardless of our financial situation or of our jobs or, you know, any situations like that, that, you know, um, I mean, if things get really bad, then, the, you know, maybe not everyone will be getting the treatment that they desperately need, but at least the, the best effort is sort of being made uh, on our behalfs by those who are charged with keeping us um, safe and healthy and well. Well, it's been, um, I don't know if I should say it's been fun. It's been—it's not exactly been a distraction from the misery of our everyday lives talking about this, but it's been interesting and I think kind of an important topic to touch on um, now. This was one we had on the back burner for a while, but uh, we thought if ever we were going to discuss it, now would probably be the appropriate time. And I hope listeners, you found it interesting as well. And it would be great to hear on the Babel Conference, anyone who picks up other things in that episode that relate to their own experiences of the health service, whatever, uh, or the health system, you know, whatever country they're in and, and how they kind of interpret that um you know do you just think we're a pair of kind of loony lefty british people coming at this <laughs> probably, <laughs> wildly probably. uh impractical perspective <laughs> who knows but i mean you know I, I think it's a decent episode uh of star trek 
I would highly recommend that Michael Moore documentary. I know Michael Moore's not to everyone's taste, but I think it's a very interesting uh, documentary. I certainly found it shocking about the American system. I wonder from an American perspective, it might be interesting to see, you know, because he does visit Britain, he goes to an NHS hospital, all of that stuff. It feels a little bit kind of cheesy and a little bit overplayed maybe. But at the same time, I think there are some valid points to be made there. But before we wrap up, Clara, any final thoughts on critical care that you want to share with the listeners? Well, I just feel like I should probably mention how impressed I was with Robert Picardo's acting in this episode. I feel that, I mean, he's always been a very good actor. He, he acts very well in every episode. But in this particular episode, I was actually very moved by his acting. Um, I felt that he can express a lot in very few words, primarily by using his face, his facial expressions. So in some of the scenes when he's just so outraged at the care that these um, patients are getting and at the inequality in this healthcare system, he's, you know, you can just read everything that he's thinking with the subtle changes of his expression. I was just really impressed. Certainly the episode wouldn't be there without that performance at the centre of it. And it's interesting. I mean, we think of the Doctor sometimes primarily as a comic character. This is a not a particularly comic episode for him. Um, I mean, the comedy in the episode comes from Janeway, really, on her sort of wild goose chase, trying to track down what's happened to the Doctor's programme. Um, she's the one who kind of gets to play it for laughs a bit. Yeah, Robert Picardo absolutely is doing the sort of... It, I mean, it's interesting you bring up past tense. There is a kind of element of similarity there, I suppose. He's the fish out of water in the kind of backward barbaric society that uh, rather closely resembles our own for purposes of social commentary and kind of, uh, you know, getting a point across to the audience. But it's been uh, good talking about this episode with you today, Clara. This is not the only thing, of course, that we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb. But of all the Section 31 that we're getting in new Trek, this feels the most legitimate. This feels like the section 31 yeah. that we we know from yeah. Deep Space Nine. And it doesn't feel like, oh, we're just going back to the well again. Because, you know, even Ira said, you know, I know they've used it in the movies, but we created this. Earl Grey. Uh, no, still no clue. It's gonna, I'm going to kick myself when I get it. Yeah, tell us, Jim. Kirsten Dunst. Oh, oh Kirsten my Dunst. gosh, of course. I hate the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Kirsten. my gosh, I knew that. What's wrong with us? The best little performance in all seven seasons, in my opinion. Literary Treks. If this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, maybe it's very much like an episode <laughs> of Voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called Seven of Nine, right? No. No, it would have to have like a one-word title to fit in with most of the other Voyager episodes, so you can't really remember which one it's about. Yeah, it would just exactly. be called Seven. That's what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! She did actually mean mm-hmm. what she said in the back in the space just before they die. I don't know, I just kind of like it. It's just I'm going to tell you I love you just before I die. Not a minute sooner. <laughs> <laughs> it's like at least I don't have to deal with the ramifications if I'm dead <laughs> well that backfired or maybe she was just like at least I don't have to hear him not say it if we're gonna die so what you're saying is next time that we ask someone to marry them or anyone who asks someone to marry them they should do it on death's door of like some kind yes. of 
crazy adventure, like jumping off a bungee jump. You're in the middle of being eaten by a shark or something. I love you, gobble, gobble, gobble. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at @missamynelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at @clara_jean_mc and Tony at, at @ajblackwriter. You're blended, all right.